Well, open up your Bible, if you will, uh, to uh, Matthew chapter 21. And I want to draw your attention this morning to verses 23 through 27. I've entitled this sermon, Why We Baptize. Uh, but I've chosen this text. So I, I, let's, let's go ahead and start here in verse 23. It says, And when he, that is Jesus, was come into the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority dost thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? And Jesus answered and said unto them, I will ask you one thing, which if ye tell me, I will likewise tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, uh, he will say unto us, Why did you not believe him? But if we say... Uh, if we shall say of men, we fear the people, for all hold John a prophet. And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Well, the Lord was uh, pretty slick in his dealing uh, with the leaders of the people who thought that they were more spiritual than anybody else. And I always loved the fact that Jesus sometimes would answer a question with a question. And, and he, he just basically told him, you know, uh, if you don't, if you can't answer me, then I'm not going to answer you. So very slick. But if you ask the average person today, Christian or not, what is meant by the word baptism? Almost universally, uh, their answer will be to be dipped in water or to be dunked. And no doubt, to a great extent, their conclusion uh, is not without merit. Through the centuries, uh, since the Lord's return to the Father, traditions have been handed down through the church that would give the impression that the word baptism should always be associated with water. But yet the New Testament is full of examples of baptism that have nothing to do with water. The Bible tells us very clearly in the New Testament that there's a baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're also told that we can be baptized into the body of Christ. Jesus said, John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So there's a baptism of fire. There's so many things uh, that are other than water that the Bible talks about in relationship to baptism. But if you, you ask the average person, because of church tradition, a lot of times their only conclusion is that baptism always means water. But uh, as with many traditions, sometimes they're just that. Uh, they are traditions, not necessarily biblical. But something that has gained a foothold uh, within the church and is accepted as fact not because the scriptures necessarily teach it, but because it has simply been passed down from someone who taught it, believed it, and it has become established truth. I chose this particular text this morning uh, because I think that it brings out the Jewish mindset on baptism. 
Now, I'm not saying, nor am I suggesting, that you have to have a mind, a Jewish mind, uh, to understand the gospel. I certainly am not suggesting that at all. But I am suggesting that the issue of baptism, which is uh, controversial at, at, at best, you wouldn't think so, but it is, uh, needs to be looked at from that particular angle. And this text, I think, does just that. Most people, and many pastors for that matter, really have no idea where the practice originated. They just assume that the Bible teaches it, uh, that it's a New Testament thing, you see. But I believe it's important to have a full understanding of what baptism is. And I'm also not suggesting that my sermon today is going to be an exhaustive study of it. We wouldn't have the time. I could really do a three-day sermon, uh, a seminar, really, on the very subject and probably not cover all aspects of it. But uh, this, I hope, represents a, a good understanding and, and, uh, and, and gives us a, a framework with which Calvary Chapel Newark operates, and, uh, or, or all believers, for that matter, in order to really just keep us from simply following tradition for the sake of tradition rather than following scriptural mandates. In our text, Jesus asked the chief priest and the elders, John's baptism, he said, was it of heaven? Was it from heaven? Or, or was it of men? <laughs> Interesting question. And it really wasn't a trick question. It was straightforward. Jesus wasn't trying to trip them up. But it was one that I really do believe Jesus knew that they would not be able to answer. And not simply because their fear of the people or their fear of the response from the Lord. Although the scripture is clear that those were factors. But unless you understand the Jewish mindset on the issue of baptism, Passages like this are going to be hard for a Gentile to really grasp. And I think that it's led to the confusion within the body of Christ. I want you to keep in mind that the early church were all Jews. <laughs> they were all Jews. They were Jews who practiced Judaism. They understood everything that Jesus said from a Judaism point of view. Jesus came first, the Bible tells us, to the Jews and then to the Gentile. The problem in the church, though, especially when you go back to the Catholic Church under Eusebius being established under Constantine, when that first began in the third century, you have to realize that anti-Semitism was so fervent and is even to this day that they wanted nothing to do with, with the Jews, Unfortunately, our Savior is Jewish, and yet they didn't want his Jewishness or any part of it. So they tended to not look at anything in the New Testament with a Jewish mindset. That's a mistake, and I really do believe that it's led to a lot of tradition that are, is not biblical. So it's important, I think, to just have a grasp of uh, uh, baptism from a Jewish point of view and just to uh, at least understand, uh, you know, how they view it. And so we want to be able to follow what the Bible actually tells us. So first, 
let me explain the word baptism. A lot of people really have no idea uh, what it really even means. It's, it's in its simplest form, uh, the word baptisma, uh, which is what it is in the Greek, uh, simply means immersion. And when I say immersion, I, I mean totally immersed. Completely covered is what the word means. Uh, head to toe, you know, completely. Not sprinkled, not doused with a little bit of water, but totally immersed. And there's really no English word uh, for baptisma. So what we have in the New Testament, the word bap, you know, baptism, is really uh, a transliteration uh, from the Greek. And the transliteration simply means they took each letter uh, from the Greek and they simply gave it a, an equal, an equivalent English letter. And thus we came up with the word baptism. But the word Leviathan is the same thing. That's an Old Testament transliteration from Hebrew. Uh, we don't have, you know, there were certain words they just didn't have. So these words have entered into the English language only because they're transliterations from the Greek. But it, it has always meant to be immersed. So when you see the word baptism in the, in the New Testament, whether he's talking about the Holy Spirit or he's talking about being baptized into Christ or baptized by water, he's talking about being totally immersed in that particular thing. So that's really what it means. So, but why would Jesus and why did Jesus ask the chief priest and the elders, from whence was John, the, you know, John's baptism? Where did it come from? Heaven or of men? My, my question, and I think it's important, is why did he ask that question? I suggest to you that it was because the Jews at that time had never seen anything like what John the Baptist was doing. There was no such thing as mass baptisms to the Jews. It just didn't happen. Nobody did that. John was there in the Jordan performing something that had never been done before. So where did this originate? Where did he get the idea? I was actually having a, a discussion with a pastor over this very issue not many weeks uh, ago. And I asked him, because he's obviously not Jewish, and I said, well, John's baptism, from whence did it come? I asked him the same question. Where did he get it? He said, well, he was, he was told to do it. I said, where's that found? It's not, <laughs> he wasn't told to do it. John was called to be the one crying in the wilderness. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But there's nowhere in the Old Testament where John was, you know, commanded to baptize. But yet here he was, out there on the Jordan, doing mass baptisms. In the Old Testament, the Jews used what is known as the mikvah. And, and really, not even just in the Old Testament, but even to this day, you know, they use mikvahs. And the word refers to a gathering of water. That's, that's really what it means, uh, a mikvah. Uh, it's a gathering of water uh, in a pool, if you will, uh, which had been specially or specifically carved out. Uh, most of the time, they would do this in stone, and they would carve these mikvahs uh, into stone. And it's so important, uh, even today, that uh, before the Jews would uh, build a synagogue, they would build a mikvah first. The mikvah had to be built first. And we'll talk about why that is uh, here in a little bit. But it's important to them. So 
this is what was given to them in the Old Testament. Okay, uh, they they utilized the mikvah, and it's interesting. I, I think about the mikvah is that it had to be supplied with flowing water. So most of them were uh, built next or at least adjacent to a river or a stream, you know, a natural sp- or, a, or a spring, those three types of water. And um, it was used to symbolize a, a purification or to go through the process of purification, which was commanded to be done by God. It was a very specific type and still is to this day uh, of a ritual, if you will. But it was something very dear to them and and something that I think that as Christians we need to understand. Thus, when we see in the scriptures that women, uh, we're told in the Old Testament there in Leviticus chapter 15, that women uh, after their period of of ministration would be over, uh, they would go through the purification of the mikvah. They would go into this bath. Now, when, when Jews, even to this day, uh, uh, go through a mikvah, uh, they must be totally naked. They would remove all their clothes. There can't be nothing between you and the purifying waters, you see. And uh, also there in Leviticus 15, it talks about uh, young men right? and uh, men in general, really, uh, that if they have a problem while they're sleeping. Uh, you can go read that chapter and find out what that is. And, and they would go through the purification of the mikvah. So, but it was also, and still is today, used uh, in ceremony of conversion. Uh, most people don't realize, you know, the Jews proselyte. And uh, Jesus even told them, he said, you, you know, he told the Pharisees, you'll search far and wide to make a proselyte. And when you find one and you make one, you make him twice the son of damnation as yourself. So they made proselytes, and so or, or you know they converted people, and when these people would convert to Judaism, they would uh, obviously go through the purification of the mikvah. They would be baptized, if you will, into it. And of course, if you were a male, then you also had to be circumcised, and then you also had to keep the law. So when there is a life-changing event, though. This is another reason why they would go through the mikvah. Many Jews will perform the mikvah. They'll go through that process. Sometimes even when there's simply a change of mind. You know, sometimes it's a thing when two Jewish men would be maybe arguing about something and one would convince the other. Uh, sometimes they would go through, uh, after the one who changed his mind would go through the process of mikvah just to illustrate that he had had a change of mind, a change of heart, if you will. And so they'll go through that. But John the Baptist came, the Bible tells us, as one crying in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. John essentially had turned the entire Jordan into a giant mikvah in which he was calling the people to change their mind about the way that they had been living and to turn to God to prove their repentance, if you will. And, and so in order to prove it, they would go through the mikvah and to make a public statement. Water has always played an enormous part in Jewish culture. Uh, its importance cannot really be understated. We find it throughout the Old Testament. We find its usage in the sacrifices that were offered for forgiveness. 
in the book of Leviticus, uh, there's a great example uh, of this, which we find in the cleansing of the lepers. Uh, let me read it for you so you get the understanding of it. And, and it's actually in Leviticus 14, there in verses 1 through 7. And here's what it says. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought unto the priest. And the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look. And behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then shall the priest command to take for him, that is, to be cleansed, two birds alive and clean, and cedarwood and scarlet and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed in a earthen vessel over running water. As for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them in the living bird and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. And he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times and shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird loose into the open field. What a beautiful picture that is of what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would eventually do for all of mankind. Every element that's in that passage there about the two birds and the cedar and the scarlet and, and the hyssop and uh, the, the blood and, and the water, it, it all is, is, was there at Jesus' crucifixion, a picture of what he would do for all mankind. Very beautiful thing. I want to make... Um, I want you to understand that, you know, when the Bible here points out that it had to be over running water that was used in the sacrifice, the running water in the Hebrew is always referred to as living water. Uh, this is just the way the Jews look at it. That's why they would build their mikvahs next to living water, which is a flowing stream, uh, a flowing river, or, or, or a flowing spring. But it was called living water, and it's, uh, it's just a beautiful way of looking at it. Now, in the book of Exodus, when God delivered the children of Israel from the bondage that they had endured for 430 years, he brought them through the desert, you remember, uh, shielding them by day uh, with a cloud and leading them by night with a pillar of fire. You know the story of the Exodus. But they would eventually go through a symbol of baptism or mikvah when they would pass through the Red Sea into the land of promise. No doubt this is a picture. As I said, it's a type. But it's really not a perfect type because uh, in reality, uh, because a sea is not necessarily, it doesn't flow like a river, it doesn't flow like a spring uh, or, or like a, a, a creek. Uh, it's not really considered uh, a, a living water. So it's not a perfect type. Thus, it lacked the ability to purify. Uh, it, it's called the Red Sea, uh, which is a hint, I believe, to the real cleansing that would take place by the shed blood of the perfect lamb, which, of course, was Jesus Christ on Calvary. Just as a sprinkling of the blood of the bird 
sprinkled on the leopard would allow the leopard to be declared cleansed. The blood of Jesus Christ sprinkled on the altar of heaven declared all men to be cleansed and forgiven. In our text, Jesus asked the people, John's baptism, where was it from? Really what he was saying was, was it from God or was it from men? Well, of course it it was from God because the Father at that time was fulfilling for the nation of Israel the promises that had been given to it of the coming of the Messiah. Then uh, what purpose, I'm asking, did John's baptism mean? Well, it's evident from the Gospel of Matthew that John's immersion, because that's what we're talking about, was a public statement or a confession of one's sins and of one's changing of heart, their changing of mind. It was not to bring forgiveness, as some have tried to say. Uh, And it's important that we know that. And it's important that we remember that the temple at the time of John the Baptist, and of course in Jesus' day, uh, was still standing. And it was in perfect operating order, so the sacrifices were still being done. Thus, in order for one to receive forgiveness of sins, a sacrifice had to be made. The fact that John's baptism uh, was, was calling people to repentance did not bring forgiveness, you see. And John himself, when he pointed to Jesus one day, when Jesus was coming over the hill, he said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So John wasn't calling them to repentance, that is the changing of their mind in a public statement in order to be forgiven. But he was bringing them to acknowledge the fact that they needed forgiveness, that they needed a Savior, that they needed the Messiah who had come. And John was the one who was pointing them to him. So John's baptism, this mass mikvah, was a purification process by which John was preparing, you see, the hearts of the Jews for the coming of their Messiah by having them acknowledge their sin, their guilt, if you will, to confess their sins and make a public statement in the immersion of water, stating that their desire was to be purified, their desire was to be forgiven. This could only be accomplished with the shedding of blood. Thus, the scriptures tells us in the book of Hebrews, Paul writing there in chapter 9, verse 22, he says, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. So the mikvah, the baptism, uh, though it was from God, as far as John the Baptist is concerned, had no ability to purge one from his sins, but only the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You see, there's many denominations and many people today who believe that salvation is attached to it. I find it interesting in the story of the woman at the well. You remember that story. Jesus told her that if she had asked of him for a drink, He said, I would have given you living water. You remember that? 
Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God requires, you see. When God required that the dove or the birds be sacrificed under running water or living water, Jesus said, I am that living water. He is everything. He is our forgiveness. He is our remission. He is our atonement. He is our propitiation. He is our justification. He is our righteousness. He is our all and all. Thus John's statement, behold the Lamb of God which take away the sin of the world was absolutely profound and, and would have been an extreme eye-opener, I believe, for the Jews who were at the Jordan that day. And one, I'm sure, that they did not understand. Not completely, at least. Not at that moment. Just as many do not understand today. And some do not still understand the rite of baptism. The confusion found on the issue of baptism within the Christian church today cannot be understated. All one has to do is a cursory study of the subject uh, in in Christian denominations and, and just look at their views on baptism and what it accomplishes. Some practice it not at all, <laughs> citing Paul. Uh, some believe it, it brings forgiveness of sin. Some practice sprinkling. Some practice sprinkling babies. Some baptize only professing believers. But I would suggest to you, regardless of the denomination in which you are now sitting and what they believe about the practice of baptism, what we as individual believers and followers of Jesus Christ ought to be more concerned about is the truth of the word. You know, what does the Bible actually say? The fact that the church has been in error before on other subjects uh, is evident. All you have to do is read the book of Galatians, where the early church had begun to demand and enforce the right of circumcision upon uh, all male converts. And this went on for some time, and Paul, of course, found himself battling this Heresy, which is what he called it. Today we call it Judaizing. My point is that we shouldn't be surprised, my friends, that in Christendom there can be found a plethora of traditions and doctrines on the issue of baptism <coughs> Pardon me. that are not necessarily correct. In the early church, the rite of baptism had already become a source of contention in the church of Corinth. Paul had to address it directly in order to try and correct it. His statements there in 1 Corinthians are very eye-opening. In chapter 1, he says, I thank God, he said, that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. 
even in light of this plain scripture, such as these that I just read, where the apostle who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament put no salvational connotation upon baptism, stating that God sent him not to baptize. You see, if baptism had a salvational effect, then Paul saying that God sent him not to baptize would be considered heresy. If it had any salvational purpose whatsoever, God would have absolutely sent him to baptize. But Paul couldn't even hardly remember the people that he had. And he even stated that, ah, I baptized Crispus and Gaius and Stephanus' house. If I baptized in it, I don't even remember. Wow. I mean, if it was salvational, you would think that the apostle who had led countless thousands of people to faith in Jesus Christ and established many churches would have made it a priority. But he didn't. He didn't. Yet, <laughs> yet so many not only uh, baptize, but they absolutely put a salvational connotation to it, stating that people cannot be saved apart from water baptism. Oh, they will argue even Peter said that we are saved by baptism. But Peter, my friends, listen to me. You know, he understood because he was a Jew. You know, he also would have practiced the mikvah. He understood that it was the immersion in water that brought about nothing more than a clean conscience toward God. That's all it did. It has no salvation effect whatsoever. All has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. If God required the children of Israel, I want you to get this, if God required the children of Israel to pass through the purifying waters of the mikvah, then Jesus came and did it on behalf of his people. This is why he submitted to baptism there on, on the Jordan with John. If God required that righteousness could only be obtained by the perfect keeping of the 613 laws of the, the, the Pentateuch and of the Torah and, and, and the whole word of God, then Jesus did exactly that, living a sinless life, keeping it perfectly for you and me. If God required that there must be the shedding of blood in order to have forgiveness of sin, then Jesus did so by submitting to the cross. If God required that there be a an intermediary between himself and mankind, then Jesus took that position after his resurrection when he sat down at the right hand of God the Father and began to make intercession for us continually to this very day. In other words, my friends, Jesus has already accomplished for the believer that which the believer has no ability to do for himself. Then what is the purpose of water baptism? It serves as an entrance point. And what I mean is that the public statement 
You know, it needs to be made. I, I have confessed my sin, you see. I have repented. I have changed my mind. I have changed my heart. That, that my old life of the flesh, I have renounced that life. And I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm walking in newness of life. <laughs> By submitting to the water of baptism, this New Testament mikvah, I am publicly identifying with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I go into that water. I go under that water. And I'm actually being buried with him in baptism. And then I am raised up and walk then in the newness of life. This is what baptism accomplishes. Nothing more, but certainly nothing less. You know, I've said it a million times that unless you are born again, you can go into the waters of baptism. And I love what Pastor Chuck used to say, I can baptize you backward. I can baptize you forward. I could baptize you side to side and dunk you three times, but if you're not saved when you go under, my friends, you're coming up nothing but a wet sinner destined for hell. Now, there are those who claim that they know Christ, that they have given their life to the Lord, and they refuse the right of baptism. I find this hard to believe because any person who genuinely is born again, I believe, will seek the baptism. Let me give you an example. In the book of Acts, we're told that there was a eunuch. He was an Ethiopian. He was a Jewish man. But he was sitting in a cart. He was reading the scriptures. And he was reading Isaiah. And Philip, one of the disciples, had come trucking along at just the right time and in the right place. And he looked up and he asked the eunuch, he said, understand what thou readest? And he said, how can I accept a man to show me? And so Philip took the place where he was reading and he preached unto him Jesus. Well, the story I love because later on as they were traveling down the road, the eunuch looks at Philip and he says, well, here's a body of water. What does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, if thou believest, thou mayest. A couple points. One, it was the eunuch that asked to be baptized. We're not told in that conversation that Philip even mentioned it. But it was something within him that saw the water. Of course, him being Jewish, he had just had a change of mind, a change of heart. And his first, first intention was to go through the water of purification of mikvah to publicly confess his changing of mind. Philip, the other point I want to make on that, said, if thou believest there are people out there maybe that's you that I'm talking to right now who was part of a church that when you were a child you were simply sprinkled with water 
And maybe you're now, maybe you've been a believer for many, many years. Now, there are people who would say, well, that's baptism. But I'm telling you, biblically, that's no more baptism than drinking a glass of water. The fact is, is that the Bible says that if you believe, you may be baptized. Babies don't come into this world believing, my friends. They have no ability to confess their sin. They have no ability to receive Christ. They have no ability to do that. So baptizing babies is simply not biblical. That is a church tradition, and it's one that's not biblical. So my point is this. I would encourage you, and I've had many people over the years who have come to me and say, I was only sprinkled as a child. Uh, Should I be baptized? And my answer is always, yes, by all means. I mean, you're no more saved than you are right now. It's not a salvational issue, but I do think if you want to be a biblical Christian, if you want to walk with a biblical worldview and a biblical understanding of what it is that Christ has done for you, then make a public stand. Go out and, and show that you have received the Lord and that you are following in his word and you are faithful to his word and that you intend to be faithful to his word and make that public statement and go through the waters of mikvah, if you will, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, uh, and you'll be blessed for it. So there you have it, my friends. That's really it. But the question is, is are you born again? You know, because once again, baptism is simply a public confession of what's already taken place in our heart, of what's already been done, because we are trusting fully and completely upon all that Jesus Christ has done. Have you done that? Oh, my friends, today I'm telling you, today our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Look around. Have you ever seen the world in such a state? Jesus said that the evil would wax worse and worse. We're seeing that happen. We were given many, many signs of his coming, and we are seeing them happen. We have seen them happen, and they are continuing to. The question is, is where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Have you been called? Do you care? Every time you turn on the broadcast, do you get that pricking in your heart that you need need to make a commitment? then God is calling you, my friend. Here's my point. If you feel that urge, do it today. Simply confess that you are a sinner and you need a Savior and ask Jesus Christ to come in to your heart. It's just that simple. And you shall be saved. This is what Paul told the jailer when he came out of the jail after the earthquake and he was scared to death and he looked at Paul and he said, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And you will be. It really is just that simple. So God bless you. The Lord make his face to shine on you. We're so excited about what's going on today. If you have given your life to Christ, if you have simply asked the Lord into your life, I'd like to hear about that. You can simply write us at ccn at uh, ccn43055 at gmail.com. That's ccn43055 at gmail.com. Let us know. We want to pray for you. We simply want to point you 
uh, in the right direction in your continued walk and your growth in Jesus Christ. But until then, God bless you, and we'll see you next time right here at Calvary Chapel North. Next Sunday, never forget, we'll start from a fresh page. God bless you guys.